Welcome to Nox Mente. Tonight's guest is author Eric Wargo. Eric is a science writer and editor with a PhD in anthropology from Emory University. He has a professional background working for organizations and government institutes conducting archaeology, psychology, and neuroscience research. In his spare time, he writes about science fiction, consciousness, and the paranormal at his popular blog, The Night Shirt. His first book, Time Loops, was published in two, uh, September of 2018. It is currently four, number 14th, the 14th, whatever, in Amazon's occult parapsychology category. Eric, welcome to the show. Welcome. Hi. Great to be here. Yeah, we're, we're very excited about this. And as I've already told you, I binged you today. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can't overdose. <laughs> Be careful. Yeah, he's like, Not smoking, on these subjects. He's like smoking pot. Can't, right. can't overdose. <laughs> so let's just jump right in and get to the early, early you in your life. What were the things that, what are the things that stick out now looking back that seem uh, that connect you to the outer world. So pop culture, movies, cartoons, those things. And did you have a relationship with nature? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, oh well, as far as pop culture stuff, you know, I'm uh, a child of the '70s. I spent my <clears throat> uh, and I was not like running around the neighborhood playing with the other kids. I was in the basement rec room, you know, with the wood panels in the beanbag chair watching Star Trek rerun. I mean, every single day. <laughs> so, I mean, <clears throat> you can understand me, <clears throat> I think, really well uh, just having that picture in your head of, uh, of you know, brown corduroys and, and velour shirt in a basement rec room watching Star Trek. That's. That's my childhood. That sounds like That's, a uh, Catholic schoolboy childhood. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's of my era too, and I, <laughs> I can picture it completely. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So, um, uh, and, but as for uh, connection to nature, absolutely. I grew up in the foothills of Colorado, and uh, uh, yeah, my parents were a little unusual. I guess they were both. They were both psychologists. Well, my dad was a psychologist. My um, mother had a master's in psychology. She didn't work actually when I was a kid. But, uh, but you know, we would, you know, they had very esoteric interests and, you know, they got into geology and rock hounding. So I, you know, every weekend we would go out fossil hunting and gold panning and uh, stuff So like they were that. geomancers. They'd, well, you know, it was, you know, they didn't have any occult occult <laughs> interests uh it was it was it was uh this kind of this love of of being outdoors and love of nature so oh that's awesome uh, so yeah nature nature and star trek are two big big things for me were you brought up religious at all no not one bit and um yeah my, my father was a you know ex-catholic you know he sort of left the church as soon as he left 
home and never looked back. Uh, my and my mother was just she really didn't have a very strong religious upbringing, and my parents they were not atheists. I mean, there was it just was religion just was not talked about. We just didn't really have a connection, and and so yeah, yeah, no religious upbringing whatsoever. Um, <clears throat> but that it it made me, and I certainly I don't. I don't feel like I was missing anything, uh, but it left me with an interest, certainly in, in uh, religion and spirituality, or what I would now call spirituality. And when I, you know, as soon as I was a teenager, I was already reading, you know, I was reading about, you know, Buddhism and mysticism, and you know, I was all, I, I gravitated to uh, kind of the spiritual but not religious. Thing, I think, uh, like a lot of my generation, um, and and certainly, you know, sort of had a connection to that my whole adult life, um, even though it wasn't really part of my childhood. But my, you know, I would say my spirituality as a child was uh, was that kind of uh, <clears throat> what I call the scientific sublime uh, that that I associate with people like Carl Sagan. You know, like I, I think the one of the big I have to would I have to say one of the big religious experiences of my of my life or trans, you know formative religious experiences was watching Cosmos you know in 1980 you know that that series every Sunday morning was just like you know incredibly powerful and still is in fact I, we we just I just started uh, rewatching it with my three year old <laughs> daughter and I have so, to say that Carl Sagan's version is way better than Tyson's oh absolutely yeah I mean there's no comparison yeah yeah. Yeah. Absolutely none, and that was a great series. Yeah, I'm yeah. a big I'm a big Carl Sagan fan, which is not necessarily a popular position among a lot of the people in the paranormal uh, sort of world. But uh, I, I I think he was he was a skeptic in in a good way, uh, not 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 a skeptic in in the bad sense like Neil deGrasse Tyson. I, th I think right. he wasn't beholden to the scientism that we see today. Exactly. Exactly. Did you form ideas of what like Godhead was at this age? When, since you didn't, since you weren't, luckily you weren't indoctrinated into anything. What were your that you can recall now looking back? What were your ideas of that? So you're li listening to Cosmos and you like sci-fi and all that. Did you were you forming ideas of? What not, there, what it could be, not explicitly, you know. But there was always, uh, looking back, uh, yes. I mean, I, I think, you know, the the science fiction of the of the seventies that I grew up with, um, there was something uh, holy or sacred or something that was in there, um, and. You know, and I could never put my finger on it. And um, and now that I've gone back uh, as an adult and sort of revisited all of that, I now see what it is, and, I'm, and I've been and I, and I write about it. You know, and I and I really view it through the lens of of Zen, uh, my Zen practice. I mean, I ultimately gravitated to Zen, uh, and that's sort of that's sort of been my you know, if I had to call myself anything, I would say I was a Zenist. Um, and uh, I really see, um, 
I, I see Zen as kind of a science fiction religion, sort of. It's it's very it's it's incredibly minimal, incredibly portable. It sort of fits into those kind of sci-fi worlds of that I associate with with the paperback book covers of the 1960s and 70s. You know, sci-fi paperbacks. I just somehow I, I associate it with that and i think it has a lot to do with the kind of japanese aesthetic that you associate with zen but uh uh there's there's some harmony there uh and mr spock you know that was you know i'd have to say if i had a model for a spiritual person that i i wanted to be it was certainly mr spock and uh you know it was a long time before I, you know, learned that in fact he was sort of inspired by his his Judaism uh, growing up, and his like his sort of creation of that character came out of things he observed in the temple. Uh, but to me, it, it seemed like a, a, a Buddhist. I mean, he you know he meditated, uh, uh, was very kind of stoic, uh, very compassionate. Uh, that seemed, you know, that that I think translated really well to my later. You know, I think I think that probably more than anything else led to my later embrace of 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 Zen. I would say. I love Spock too. That is, uh, and also what a gift that you were able to freely come to these things on your own without having having anything you know kind of forced down upon you. You know, so many. Yeah get that that experience where things are forced on them as far as religiously yeah absolutely you know i i have this conversation with my wife a lot about you know we sort of discuss whether uh we feel like you know she had a a a sort of a secular jewish um upbringing you know so that so that she went to synagogue but it wasn't you know they you know it was kind of you know there wasn't a lot of really religious (laughs) you know belief and practice it was kind of you know more of the of the tradition and so forth uh and uh you know she asked if I feel like I missed out not having that and i I don't feel at all like I missed out uh and I feel like just as you say, I feel very actually very fortunate that I didn't have uh, some um kind of dogma that was you know that that was being forced upon me uh and i but i you know i I also had very open-minded and encouraging parents who sort of encouraged the seeking mentality. And I think I just, you know, that, that enabled me to, to sort of find what I needed when I was older. Yeah. I, I had the same thing. I, they were, my parents were open-minded and nothing was forced down, which now allows me in my, in my adult life. It's always allowed me to look at everything really with curiosity. And yeah. so there's no hangover with anything. Right. Uh, what about so back back in those early days? Do you recall having any typical fears or atypical fears? You know, the something under the bed, the darkness, all that kind of stuff. Sure. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, um, <laughs> I think the first time <laughs> Bigfoot was my was <laughs> just terrified me. I uh, I uh, I think the first. Yeah, I'm sure that the the first movie my parents took me to was this like wonderful early 70s documentary called uh mysterious monsters bigfoot by schick sun films i'm trying to think of the name of the of the guy who narrates it uh 
uh, it's slipping my mind. But anyway, it was it's a really wonderful documentary with these really scary reenactments of these Bigfoot encounters, <laughs> and and I, that, it just scared me, scared the, the pants off. <laughs> um, and I, yeah, I was uh, I, I I was scared of Bigfoot my whole childhood. Fascinated, but scared. You know, uh, I, I think I had the usual fears. Um, you can say shit it's okay 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 i was wondering yeah so it, just scared the shit out. It, it, it scared the, the shit out of me i was wondering so on that even stand and so some of these things i feel like i i kind of know because i've i've binge listened to you and i enjoy your book and all this but this is you know it's kind of autonomous an autonomous thing this interview or chat but so where do you stand on bigfoot now the whole phenomena. Yeah, well, I, uh, I I'm still a believer, you know, and I, uh, but I it's 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 not something that I've I've really delved into uh, heavily. But I did actually uh, have a great opportunity to hang out with Jeff Meldrum a couple years ago at a at a, uh, a Society for Scientific Exploration meeting, and uh, uh, I had lunch with him and stuff, and I, I just you know, I, his presentation and stuff really convinced me. <laughs> I was very, I was very, uh, uh, very compelled by the evidence. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I have, I'm, I'm, I would say, uh, 90% uh, a Bigfoot believer, uh, and, and kind of a boring Bigfoot believer in that I, you know, kind of tend to think it's, uh, you know, it's an undiscovered, you know, hominid, uh, species uh i don't i don't yeah you're not an interdimensional guy i'm not an international guy when it comes yeah. to but. i i can tell i had i didn't even think they were real i didn't think much of them and i had a very visceral experience with it and i can tell you it was very real <laughs> and it was really? scary scary sc one of the scariest things ever in my life and so now I'm one of those complete believers in it, where oh. before it was just in that murky, mm, whatever. Where state. was this? This was over here where I live in the Pacific Northwest, over by Mount Hood. I was ex I was really remotely camped mm -hmm. and had, you know, my dogs and another person with me. So I had, I also had, so that's a witness who is a staunch, uh, you, he just was not a believer in that stuff. I, I'm a believer in lots of stuff, weird stuff. Mm -hmm. I love the woo, but Bigfoot was not on my radar at all. Now, yeah. now I, there are places I won't go. And if I get that scent, the very first smell, it's kind of uh, hormonal. I won't, I won't move further into the deep wood. In fact, I actually kind of leave the deep wood alone now. <laughs> Yeah, like no, the really remote areas. You said deep wood. I know. I, I grew up with the British people around me, so wood rather than woods. Uh, yeah, so now I just, I, I'll go to the, I go I'm in the forest every week, but there's just, there's a depth of it I won't penetrate because I feel like it's not, there's a feeling I get. I guess I better, it's a better way where I feel like this is remote enough. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and oh. because my experience it was not a welcoming experience they weren't they did it was a definite fear experience and my the person i was with it you know got the audio experience in his head 
and it growled and it was, yeah, it was definitely get the hell out of here. <laughs> so it was, uh, you, did you see it or was it? Yes, I, I, oh. I saw it wow. <laughs> with my own eyes. And what's, and you talk about this a lot anyway, one of the things that is, uh, my mind wanted to turn it into other things, right? Yeah. My mind wanted to turn it into a bear. And I've been around bears a lot, especially up in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. And up, I always seem to live. You know, I live in remote places. It was not a bear. It was no. The form wasn't a bear. The smell wasn't a bear. But my mind still wanted to convince me that oh, logically, this is what it is. So it's amazing. It's amazing that 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 kind of warping of your experience uh, around these things that that culture just doesn't make a place for or accept uh it's it's yeah it's incredible the kind of self-doubt that it yes. can provoke after a, 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 a incredibly compelling experience that you know <laughs> nevertheless give it a few days you can very easily start to doubt yeah yeah i will i now i i, I absolutely validate the experience i know what i saw i know what i actually felt which was very in my body visceral. And then it was very hormonal, that jaw, the back of your jaw, hormonal, oh. where you, you know, I don't know how to describe that. Right when you said hormonal, I pressed enter on a message in chat that said she had some kind of hormonal response. <laughs> Jerry, there we go with the synchronicity. Dr. Synchro at the home here. <laughs> so back in your, back here in the, uh, in, in the past here, what was your relationship with the dream world and how were, how did dreams play out for you as a young person? Yeah, I would love to remember <laughs> because, um, I mean, I remember, you know, dreams, uh, even when I was a little kid, but, uh, and I, and I remember a few dreams from when I was really small. Um, so you know, dreams were part of my life, but I wasn't, you know, I, I I I didn't know what to make of them, and I don't think I talked about them with, you know, my parents. Uh, so uh, I, I remember one of <clears throat> my father was a, a psychologist, and he had like lots of pop psychology and human potential books on his uh, bookshelf. This would be another kind of formative thing for my childhood. You know, my dad was an obsessive book purchaser uh like i've become but i'm like unlike me he never read the books he purchased you know so he would you know he had just like bookshelves full of these you know you know popular like pop psychology and human potential stuff which was very popular at the time uh but you know he wouldn't probably he wouldn't read these books but i would read them you know and i remember one book was by um ann faraday called the dream game and uh, it was sort of, a, I think, of a bestseller, you know, mid seventies, probably or late seventies, uh, and that, you know, well, that was super interesting. That was probably my introduction to kind of basic dream psychology. Um, I've actually always meant to go back to that book and and um, see what she says, but uh, I uh, so like that was that was a, a kind of milestone, and I always so I thought about dreams a lot, and I definitely noticed them, but I didn't. I didn't know to write them down, you know, until uh, until much later. I don't think I ever wrote a dream down until uh, after college, probably. 
Well, this is this is part of what we are always pondering here is is how mm, transient things are. Memory, dreams, the past, it's all meshes together. But with within that idea and uh and in in context to this conversation, you you did just mention that you might have a memory of a couple of dreams you had when you were little. Do you mind sharing the images that stick out? Sure. Uh, the the what I what I think of as my earliest dream was of a <clears throat> was that I was living with my mom and dad, in a red caboose. It was a red train caboose. Uh, and it was in this kind of this big, flat kind of desert. But marching across this desert very slowly in every different direction were these plants. They were kind of like yucca plants, sort of. And they marched slowly across the desert. Uh, and I knew maybe because uh, my parents told me or warned me, but if the plants ever touched you, you would die. And uh, and so this this image uh, and this dream has always stuck with me. And I I definitely know the sources of the dream now. Uh, the, the plants, my mom was obsessed with cactus and succulents. She had, you know, the house was full of cactuses and succulents. So I'm sure at some point, you know, she warned me about not, not getting too close to the cactuses or they'd hurt me, you know? So I'm sure that that's where that, that idea you die if, if, <laughs> if you, if these plants touch you come from. And the plants looked like some of the sort of succulents that she had, uh, around the house. And the red caboose, um, I, I only later when I, uh, this was, I don't know, probably 25 years ago, we were, I was driving up to, we have some mountain property uh, in northern Colorado. And I was taking this back road to the northern, to the, to the property that we, that I hadn't taken since probably I was a kid. And along the road up to this property was a red caboose, uh, an old red caboose that someone had hauled up this dirt road and was living in or had lived in by the side of the road. And I, I, I figured that must be the source of that image. Um, but uh, yeah, that's, that's probably my, um, my first dream. I also have a, I also have a memory of uh, a dream that maybe was, I don't know if it was a nightmare, but a very uh, scary dream of, of, of being uh, left at school in the evening. I think this was during preschool and, I, and, and having a dream that, that, that nobody came and picked me up and I, I sort of was there at night and, and, and there was no one to pick me up. So I remember that, that too. But I don't know which of those was the earliest dream. I love the image of the, the plants marching. I think that's very dynamic. Yeah, I love it. I tried to write a story about it once. I, I have a million science fiction stories that never, never got anywhere. That's house. a good. That's a good image to to put into something, though. It's. I had like know. a flash of Fantasia with, with organic Fantasia. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. 
Oh, that's great. Which just reminded me of a book I read a while back. It was called, I think it was called Deus Ex Machina, but not the same one. It was about a virus that was, it was like a GMO insect that got accidentally out into the wild mm -hmm. and turned all the immune systems of the plants uh, up <laughs> like 10 uh. notches. So they started producing tons of pollen and all kinds of crap and everyone like died from a cold basically <laughs> this <laughs> sounds actually plausible oh, it yeah. totally was <laughs> I'll, I'll look for the book but yeah that reminds because the plants were kind of marching in that oh really yeah 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 that's interesting jared i'd not heard that <laughs> <laughs> so so back here in your youth a little bit this this idea of uh dreaming was there so and th this is in conjunction with where you are now but did your has your dreaming life the landscape of your dreaming life changed since then and what i'm looking for is did in in your younger life when you're dreaming so not just these first dreams but or you know just earlier you a uh, color sensate stuff all that has there has it been steady or have there been changes in the dreamscape for you? Oh yeah. There's been radical changes over the years. I mean, I, I, I would be interested to sort of talk to others, uh, dreamers about this. Uh, so yeah, I'd love to know your experiences too, but I, uh, it's certainly, for one thing, it changes definitely with sleep quality. And as I've gotten, uh, as I've gotten older in my, in the, over the last, uh, I would say five, six years. Uh, my unfortunately, it's my my sleep quality has gone down because I've developed sleep apnea and all these problems that that come with age. And uh, uh, and as sleep quality declines, so does dream quality, or at least dream recall. So you know, I don't remember. I, it's it's I don't remember nearly as many dreams or as or as many details of my dreams uh as i used to when i was uh, uh a younger adult um and uh, there are exceptions and every now there's now and then there's an exception where like wow i, I just i'm able to like write a couple of pages in, in a in a journal describing you know all this great detail uh and it's really interesting but you know unfortunately those those rich you know really uh, you know, full of symbolism, dreams uh, are are less frequent for me uh, now that I'm in my in my <laughs> have just started my sixth decade. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, I, I but I I don't know if it's you know I, I suspect uh, I don't know my hunch is that that you know dreams dreams are metabolizing our experience and. They so my hunch is that they're going to naturally change over the course of life. Uh, for for one thing, because our experience changes. Um, uh, there's that aspect of um, dreams as you know memory consolidation, as involved in learning, and for most people, you know, as we get older, we have less that we need to learn. Uh, so I wouldn't be surprised. Uh, to find that a lot of people as they age have less and less vivid dreams. Although I, I don't know. I don't know if that's true or if that's been verified. 
Um, but, uh, but yeah, definitely my dreams have, have changed over the years and the quality has changed. Um, I don't know. I mean, what's your, what, what, what are your guys' experience <laughs> as far as that goes? Uh, for me, I think it's, it's been pretty consistent when I want some of what I hear you saying is like possibly connected to like neuroplasticity. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, but, but I, I still dream as vividly as ever. And, uh, although I, I can say that depending on what's going on, of course, because it's so interrelated, you know, if we're, as you already mentioned, if we're under stress events or not enough good sleep where we're, where we just going to deep sleep and pass REM and, you know, just the body's trying to heal in any way it can, uh, whatever is going on with that, it definitely changes. I, I've set my life up to be as stress-free as possible. So mm. I get really good sleep. Yeah. Well, part of it for me is I have a toddler. Yes. <laughs> like, yes which, <laughs> which kind of like, you know, like say goodbye to yes. <laughs> quality sleep. And also, and also I was going to add, I don't know how much of this, you know, when you see any question about dreaming or your dream life, what you're really talking about is dream recall because you know we don't yes you know we're we're all dreaming theoretically two two and a half hours a night and uh so part of it is what we remember later so i can't really say how my dream life exactly is different but uh so i may be just talking about my dream recall i don't well this was something i wanted to get into you i'm glad i binged you today because i listened to you as you've done interviews along the way however the doing it today some of this is fresh for me and i'm wondering where you are with the idea of i'm asking us more for the sake of people that may be listening to this than because i feel like i kind of know where you're going where you are with synchronicity in the dream experience and how we harness it through re- recording of the dreams when we wake up right well recording is i'm sure you would agree is crucial i mean that's yes uh you're not going to be able to work with your dreams if you're not writing them down um uh uh the as far as synchronicity i mean my uh and this is something i i get into uh, a bit in the book and and uh, on my blog as well is uh, my approach is thinking of it in terms of precognition uh, that uh, we are precognizing constantly uh, and especially in our dreams uh, and we're not aware of it. I mean, this is under the, this is, this is, this all belongs to the realm that Freud called the unconscious. Um, so it's, it's not available to conscious inspection directly, but nevertheless, it guides us. And because it's guiding us, because we're being oriented toward, uh, certain rewards and certain outcomes and certain discoveries in our, in our near future, we have these experiences, which we call synchronicity, uh, because that's what you know the term that Jung gave us. Uh, but 
uh, I, I believe that this is, you know, that there's a tendency to think of synchronicity as somehow the word, you know, some, some, you know, uh, uh, you know, archetypes that exist outside of us, you know, stage managing our lives to bring us to certain points for our edification or whatever. Uh, I, that's I, not our def. Well, that okay. Well, that's that's that was Jung's sort of yeah. definition, and uh, and that's certainly not what I think. I mean, I think it's a it's a a reflection of our our own uh, unconscious precognitive guidance system, and that when when we're really cooking <laughs> precognitively, we're having these experiences which feel like meaningful coincidences but basically we've been we're just in touch with our precognitive guidance system um so that's how i sort of define synchronicity uh or how i think about synchronicity but you also talk about it that it has a i don't want to call it a back-end component but a second component an entangled portion that the, the retro retro causality causing a synchronicity well, retro, causa retro causation is the kind of physical principle mm -hmm. that enables precognition to to occur. Uh, it's it, there are two sides. There are two just sort of two aspects of the same thing. Um, okay, I see. Uh, retro causation is a more physical. Uh, if I were talking to physicists, I would be using the term retro causation. Mm -hmm. uh, because you know they they're they're thinking in terms of particles and and interactions and, and you know uh, and it's <clears throat> uh, there's um, always in physics been or not always but you know since uh, for about the last century there's been this idea that that well you know maybe uh, maybe causality doesn't just go in one direction and on a physical level and uh and but we're just now uh or we i say we i'm not a physicist but I, physicists are just now able to sort of design you, experiments you stayed in the holiday in last night idea. uh and and find that yeah it's starting to look like uh you know at a very basic at a quantum level causality isn't what we experience you know on our uh daily life level but uh, the the idea is that 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 certain things like brains can scale up this quantum retrocausation uh, uh, principle and enable um, uh, what I'm calling precognition, which I'm, I'm just using that as a as an umbrella term to subsume not only things like premonitory dreams, um, promo, you know, visions of uh, you know, premonitions and presentiment, uh, what, what in literature and religion is called prophecy, you know, all these, these ideas of, mm. of seeing, feeling, or somehow being influenced by uh, experiences ahead of us in time. Right. Right. Uh, I, was, I was incorrect saying they were connected. I was thinking about precognition mm -hmm. because uh, there was something you'd said well, I, I kind of got what you were saying that the, this is just a, not a tangent, but it's related, that the precognition is really the, the, the psychic effect, basically, that you, or the whatever. You're, it's the imp imprint in the future that you remember in right. the past. Yeah, so, it's just memory in reverse is, yeah. is my hypothesis. Um, and it's a hypothesis based on 
looking at kind of all the the data that we have, not just kind of laboratory experiments, uh, but uh, all of the you know the the what's denigrated as anecdotal data, <laughs> um, uh, you know the the sort of non-repeatable kinds of experience, powerful but non-repeatable experiences right. that that you and I uh, may have um, uh, frequently or infrequently, and that are you know abundant abundant record of this in literature and and you know that goes across cultures and and across history i mean it's a it's an incredibly prevalent uh phenomenon and experience that our culture just rejects um it's been and, beaten out of us and burned out right, of us <laughs> right and it's been, it's rejected so much that that a lot of people you know, just have no awareness whatsoever of this kind of thing going on in their lives. Um, and, <clears throat> yeah. Um, no, it's cool. No, you'd brought up, I just want to mention for people who are listening, if they have a hard time dealing with the thought of this, is to watch the movie The Arrival, or Arrival. Absolutely, yeah. Because it's a good demonstration of this concept. Exactly. I mean, you couldn't ask for a better uh, demonstration. I, and... Uh, yeah, when I saw it, I didn't know. I did not know what to expect. I, 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 I saw it. Uh, I think the opening night, and just because I, you know, it'll, this was supposed to be a really good science fiction film, I was like really excited about it. Uh, first contact, you know, story. So I thought, yeah, this is gonna be great. And wow, when when the sort of precognition stuff came into the movie, I was just had chills because I'm like, I'm working on a book on on exactly what what they're showing in this movie. Uh, and the funny thing is. Um, the stories about precognition or, or time travel uh, have uh, they act as kind of attractors for precognitive experiences. So I, you know, I, after I saw the movie, I realized, oh my god, I'd precognized this the the previous day in various ways, and everyone and and everyone that I talked to about the movie had similar uncanny experiences around the movie, you know? Uh, uh, but yeah, that's a, that's a great film. Those are synchro swarms that we call them. Yeah. Synchro swarms. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. Uh, yeah. That, uh, can I ask another question? Is that okay? Yes. Yeah, of course. So how do we separate remote viewing from this phenomenon? Right. Well, that's a, that's a great question. Um, I don't, my, I won't say a position, my hype, my, my guess, my strong suspicion and the hypothesis that I'm kind of pushing, mm -hmm. um, even though I can't, you know, say it, I can't, you know, be a hundred percent sure. Your current thinking, your current My thinking. current think, yes, my current, thank you. My, th my current thinking on this uh, is that there is no separation and mm -hmm. that, that that remote viewing is really precognition uh and uh again this is an idea that that's not new this goes back um to you know even the 1970s at at uh SRI, SRI when they were developing mm -hmm. remote viewing um you know Jacques Vallée the the ufologist who was you know one floor up mm -hmm. from the SRI Folks. I mean, the, he would have Yuri lunch with Geller these guys. Shenanigans. Yeah, and he would uh, have lunch with these guys and say, "Well, how do you know that that clairvoyance, you know, remote viewing is not pre 
precognizing, you know, you know, what you're going to learn later about, you know, what your, your feedback potentially. Mm-hmm. And this was, so this is all, this is an idea that's been there from the start. Um, uh, but it's kind of not been the favored view. Um, uh, and sort of, it's, it's, it's easier to think of remote viewing as, you know, your consciousness, you know, somehow traveling across space and, and, and seeing a distant, uh, you know, sight. It's, it's a lot harder to wrap your head around the idea that what feels like, you know, traveling out of your body and visiting a, a distant site uh, is, you know, actually just getting kind of a, a preview of the feedback you're going to get later. I mean, it's just, that's just harder to kind of wrap your head around. Mm-hmm. But my current thinking is that that's uh, what's, what's going on with remote viewing. Um, uh, and even the, the SRI researchers uh, acknowledge that, that feedback played a very important role. You know, the question was whether it was all the story or just part of the story. Um, uh, so I, I, you know, I, I'm of the, in the camp, the small camp that's, that says it might be the whole story. So I've had kind of a background theory that out-of-body travel is a, intense form of remote viewing in a way mm-hmm. which throws a whole nother wrench in that way. lucid dreaming then is somehow connected to this absolutely yeah, so, yeah. Uh, uh, well i've had some very here's i'll tell you what gave me sort of um uh, what strengthened my view on this was my own some of my own lucid dreaming and out-of-body experiences. And I haven't had a lot of the latter. I've had a lot of lucid, lucid dreams. I've had a, a few uh, out-of-body experiences as an adult. Uh, actually, really just, I think, two or three. It's uh, three more but, than me. But all of them, well, yeah, I mean, it's not easy. I, I had them spontaneously when I was a teen. Uh, actually, but uh, it's one of those things that as you age and you're like, oh, I'm really interested in this now. I'd like to <laughs> bring one of those on again. And uh, yeah, it's 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 a uh, the, the instructions make it a lot easier than it actually is. Uh, but uh, those experiences turned out to be. And I write about this on my blog. Those experiences turned out to be in body experiences later. So they were like, essentially, I think of them as video quality precognitive experience. Um, yeah. and could be. Uh, I've had also lucid dreams that that operated the same way. Um, so I sort of think of this as a, a possibly a continuum, you know, of 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 kind of vividness of of precognitive experience. But I was gonna but what you said um, uh, somehow reminded me um, uh, you know, one of my first, well, actually, one of the first things that, that clued me into this, and this, I also write about this on the blog, I think, that uh, I, back when I got started studying uh, ESP research, this is probably, I don't know, this is probably eight years ago, nine years ago now. Um, I, you know, I think like a lot of people, I thought, well, I'm going to try this myself, obviously. Uh, and so I, uh, I had my, my wife print out 
sort of pictures when she was at work, put them in envelopes, okay? And then I would try to remote view them. Uh, when, we, when she brought them home at night, she'd, uh, I, would, I would try to remote view what was in the envelope, you know, do a drawing and then open the envelope and see if I was right. I, I was not very good <laughs> at that. So I thought, so then I had the idea, well, I'm gonna let my dreams um, uh, play a role. And so, so we, you know, she gave me an envelope, a sealed envelope with a picture in it, uh, and I put it by my bed, and I just went to sleep, okay? And then I'm, in, in the morning, I woke up, and I, uh, I recorded, you know, the only um, uh, dream I could remember. Um, well, this dream, um, uh, it was about... It was about a, uh, it was about a, like a charismatic sort of military commander who was um, on this very sort of idyllic, in this very idyllic landscape, and there was a bunch of people around him who were had very dark tan, uh, and they and they and they somehow he wanted to get them to leave this this place, and uh, and they didn't want to. And he was, and then at some point he pulled out like this walkie-talkie or some sort of phone, and was communicating with a ship that was some. The ship wasn't visible in my dream, but the ship was like some port somewhere else, and the ship was somehow under attack. Okay, well I have this had this dream anyway. Um, okay, so I I pulled out the picture over breakfast. I opened the envelope and pulled it out. And it was nothing like my dream. It was like a, it was a, a, just a picture of a, of a hand gesture, a specific hand gesture, the two hands sort of with their palms open. So it seemed to have nothing to do with my dream. I just chalked it off as a, as a failure. But then it occurred to me to, to free associate on, on the hand gesture and in the picture. And the first thing that came to mind for that hand gesture was a specific old Star Trek episode. Okay, it's, 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 a, it's an original series Star Trek episode called The Apple. And it's like, it's basically the Enterprise goes to Gill Gilligan's Island, where it's this, you know, they, they go to a, a planet. Uh, uh, and I realized all of a sudden when I made that connection, I realized, oh, that was what I was dreaming. The, the dream was enacting the whole scenario of that Star Trek episode, which was... Uh, uh, which was about you know the Enterprise visits this planet and there are these kind of very tanned natives and it's the planet's controlled by this ancient computer uh, with a stone head god and they're sort of feeding this god and uh, they're sort of kept in this uh, state of you know they're kind of it's it's that god is kind of like an archon you know it's <laughs> they're kind of uh, in this uh, uh, they have no spontaneity or whatever in their lives and 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 kirk you know and the enterprise are trying to destroy this thing to, to sort of liberate them from this uh and meanwhile the enterprise is under attack by this by this this robot uh so i realized oh my god i i was i was dreaming about something associated with that that hand gesture uh in that in that picture but then in order to sort of confirm and remind myself about this episode here's the here's the, the key I, I then immediately watched the episode you know i mm -hmm. I, I queued it up and 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 watched it and then as i was watching it i realized that my dream was not about the picture in the envelope my picture was about what i was doing the next morning to confirm 
this remote viewing <laughs> kit that I'd had. You know, I was I was precognizing watching this Star Trek episode in a kind of state of excited glee at that I'd had this you know really cool uh, what I thought of as a remote viewing hit, but was really a precognitive experience. It was actually a, what an associative or associated yes. remote viewing hit. Associative, right? Yes. Yeah. You know, I, I heard you talking about this with someone, I don't remember who, but um, using it for financial gain fails remote viewing, you know, at, at a good rate. But with associative remote viewing, it works much better. And to that end, uh, Dick Algeyer is doing it with cryptos right now. He's got a YouTube channel. Hmm. So they, like, uh, I think, I forget exactly how they do it, but they show up, they'll have two different pictures. Uh-huh. that they'll show if the market goes up or down, and then they'll have remote viewers look at those pictures. Right, right. Yeah, no, I, I'm sure that associative remote viewing is, is certainly the way you would capitalize on this um, for, you know, in order to predict, you know, yeah, real-world no, yeah. outcomes. Yeah. Yeah, I don't, I have no idea if it's successful. I don't, I'm not following it, but I just thought it was interesting. So I don't, okay, right. I'm done, I'm done. <laughs> Sorry. No, Jerry, those were, as you know, those are all things that we ask, and I want to underline we. No, I know. I just didn't want to <clears throat> monopolize but, your time. Well, it's just, it's our time. With, with all this, can you give us a couple ideas, uh, Eric, on some imagery on some lucid dreams you've had, the couple you've had? <clears throat> well, I've had a lot of lucid dreams, and the most, actually, the most vivid and striking precognitive dream I had was a lucid dream. Uh, and this was um, a little over a year ago. It was in January of 2018, I believe. And, uh, you know, most, most precognitive dreams, in my experience, uh, require a little bit of free association. There's a, there's, there's a kind of associative uh, thing. I don't have very many. They're just vividly the thing, you know, the the, the scene or whatever. Um, but this was, uh, I was flying over this landscape um, and it was sort of a prehistoric landscape. And uh, as I descended, I, and I saw some creatures. I thought, oh my God, this is going to be so cool. It's going to be like a Jurassic Park kind of thing. These look like dinosaurs. Like, wow, I was really excited. Anyway, as I landed, between these two creatures, and they were really very, they weren't the exciting dinosaurs I was expecting. They were very kind of nondescript uh, creatures that I sort of associated with, you know, the period before the dinosaurs. You know, there's like kind of the, at the beginning of, the, of your dinosaur book when you were a kid, you know, there'd be, you know, some kind of, you know, vaguely reptilian, vaguely mammalian creatures kind of just were just not very exciting, you know, and you're, you're always more interested in the dinosaurs later. Well, these, there were a couple of these, okay? Uh, but it was very, they were very vivid. One of them was sort of scaly and lizard-like and kind of squat and evil-looking. And, and the other one was kind of more like, almost like a saber-toothed tiger kind of, but more like a dog, uh, sort of a, I don't know, it was kind of hard to describe. But anyway, I landed right between these two creatures and I had to keep them apart because they wanted to fight. So I'm like holding them apart sort of desperately with my hand. Um, and, uh, and, and there's this weird detail. There's like uh, the, the one of the, cre the creature on the left had a, a laser pointer, like a laser 
uh, dot like right on its head. And I was, I, I want to know who was targeting it. Like it was like a hunter was like targeting it, but I couldn't turn my head to see who that was. Okay. Well, uh, anyway, so I, I woke up and I wrote down this, this, this dream. So that evening I checked, uh, the mailbox and I got, and I was, you know, surprised and happy to find the first issue of this magazine that I'd subscribed to a couple months before, but I hadn't gotten my first issue yet. And it was a magazine called Prehistoric Times. Uh, and it's, uh, uh, it's sort of a fan magazine about dinosaurs and dinosaur collectibles and dinosaurs in art and stuff like that. It's got a little bit of paleontology, but it's also kind of more about the pop culture aspect of dinosaurs. Anyway, I got it because I discovered it at a museum in Colorado when I'd been out there earlier, and I uh, thought it was pretty fun, and I sort of wanted to connect, reconnect to my sort of <laughs> childhood filled, filled with dinosaur models and stuff. Uh, and so I subscribed to it. I also like showing my daughter pictures of dinosaurs. So anyway, so I got the first issue, um, and I didn't know it was coming, had no idea what was going to be in the issue or anything. Uh, anyway, so I'm, I'm thumbing through this, this issue and I turn the page and boom, there's, there is the scene that I, I was in, in my dream. And it's the exact creatures that I was sort of keeping at, you know, keeping at arm's length, you know, they were trying to fight. It's like, it's exactly the same scene and they're facing each other and they're about to fight, uh, in this uh in this scene and i learned that you know the the creature on the left was called a scutosaurus and the, and the creature on the right was called a sauroctonus and uh anyway it it was you know very you know very strikingly uh like just i didn't have to do any uh you know a free association to realize that these were precognitive but there was that element of the of the laser dot which was not in the picture. And I sort of like thumbed through the rest of the magazine to see if, you know, there was something like that, that, that I might've kind of uh, been precognizing and I, I couldn't find anything. So uh, it finally it occurred to me, well, just, you know, reassociate on it. What's the first thing it reminds me of? And it's like, well, boom, the first thing that came to mind was the Terminator, you know, there's a scene in the Terminator. I hadn't seen the Terminator in decades, but the, one of the scenes that's always stood in my mind is, you know, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know, going through the bar, you know, and there's a laser dot on Linda Hamilton's forehead. And I thought, oh my God, you know, what is the Terminator but a time traveler who's hunting a creature in the past, right? And I realized, oh my God, I'm, I'm the hunter. I was the hunter in the dream targeting you know, this, this creature, you know, looking at going over, looking at, at my dream journal and, you know, excitedly with this copy of the magazine open in front of me, you know, I was the hunter. So that, so that, that laser dot was kind of re a representation of what I was doing right then, you know, like what, 12 or 14 hours after I'd had that dream, uh, which was going back, you know, to my journal and, and, and excitedly sort of discovering this precognitive hit. Um, so that was a very uh, vivid, lucid dream uh, example. Um, uh, but yeah, it's uh, precognitive dreams are, are almost a daily 
experience, but they're not as usually as vivid as that. <laughs> That's fantastic on many levels. And it, it definitely uh, brought forth several questions. One of which is, this is a good point to introduce what you're postulating in the time theory of the block mm -hmm. and uh, how, how that could, how that plays into here, because a lot of people could, would read, and I think popularly, a lot of people read these things in quite a different way when they're self-analyzing. Mm -hmm. So will you introduce a little bit of that, of your theory? In yeah, sure. It's not and that's, that, yeah. using that. Sure. It's, um, well, it's not my theory. I and mean, this is, this goes back to Einstein. It really goes back to Einstein's teacher, uh, Hermann Minkowski. Uh, after Einstein published his special theory of relativity in the early um, uh, <clears throat> early part of the last century, uh, his teacher Minkowski um, is the one who really sort of put this together that that or the implications of of Einstein's theory for uh, the idea that space and time can't be separate that they're part of you know, what he called a space-time continuum. Uh, so the, the term space-time really goes back to Hermann Minkowski. And, and the way what he, you know, argued was that you have to think of space-time as this big four-dimensional block. Now, we can only think in three dimensions. So, but just, you know, just sacrifice one of those space dimensions and and just imagine that one of those dimensions in this block this you know three-dimensional block one of those dimensions is time okay uh and the the idea is that basically that all events uh are are already there in this big four-dimensional block uh and that what we think of as uh an object or a person, or a dinosaur, or whatever, is really a world line. Uh, that is to say, it's a, a sort of a worm that, that snakes its way uh, a certain distance through that block. Uh, and what we experience at any given moment, you know, what we call the now, or the present moment, is really just a cross-section of that block. Uh, and, uh, and so you can think of consciousness as kind of this you know, I sort of I like to think in terms of a video editing program, and and consciousness is kind of our cursor, you know, that kind of scrolls across the video editing timeline. Uh, it's not a, a very, it's it's a crude metaphor. We know that 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 time isn't really like that, and but, consciousness isn't really like that. But still, it's a kind of a, a handy way of thinking about it. Um, that's a common a view or practice of some Hindu culture. I forget which one exactly, but they talk about it as the, it's either the, your snake life or your, your, the snake man. It's, it's got snake in the, in the title. I've heard the term long body before. Yes, and I that's don't know it. where that comes from. That's, it's Hindu. Um, it's yeah, in yeah. there Hindu somewhere. Yeah. It's yeah. the long body. Yeah. And it's basically the fifth, fourth dimensional view of yeah, 3d. Right. Yeah. And uh, and so the idea is, you know, this is what um, this is partly what enables something like retrocausation, uh, or to makes it thinkable. You know that that the future is not. We we tend, I think, just we sort of habitually think of the past as somehow 
set in stone behind us and we're kind of continuously kind of piling on uh, the past, you know, but that the future is just nebulous and open. Uh, well, according to the sort of Minkowski block universe view, it's all kind of fixed. Um, so that's uh, that's the block universe view, and that's and it's been the dominant kind of uh, at least tacitly, it's sort of the the dominant view for a lot of physicists, uh, and has been ever since then. Uh, Where because, does free will fit into that model? Well, it, <laughs> this is a, this is a great question, and uh, the the free will is the big stumbling block for people to sort of countenance this idea of a block universe. Or, um, or we don't have it. Or we don't have it. Well, that's uh, what I like to invite people to do is to simply take their belief in free will or their, their sort of cherished notion of free will and just set it on a shelf. Yeah. You know, you yeah. don't have to, I'm not asking you to, to, to get rid of it, but just see what it feels like not have that piece of baggage. Um, I'll say that the I've discovered, I mean, I think most people have a sort of a knee-jerk reaction against this idea of a deterministic block universe initially. But the more that you kind of sit with it and think about it and work with it, uh, it kind of works on you kind of like a Zen koan, really. And in fact, I've found, you know, I had a, my own sort of knee-jerk reaction to it, but then the more I thought about it, the more it really, uh, I found a lot of depths in this idea uh, that are very satisfying. And, uh, and, it, and it meshes very well, actually, with Zen. I mean, a lot, a lot of, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of Zen stories that are essentially about, about the kind of uh, sort of firsthand experience of, of essentially the, the block universe. Um, and, uh, so uh, it's I've I've come to really love the block universe and love the idea that there's no free will, but that but you have to sort of you have to have to bring people to along gently to that <laughs> that idea because it sounds it sounds very unappealing uh, initially. Uh, yeah, yeah, I I I totally agree. I'm I'm right there with you. I gave up on that a long time ago but <laughs> another way to look at it which is the way i came to grips with it is that you are living through a real-time life review that's another way of looking at it right yeah yeah how does the idea of interdimensionality and and i, I listened to you speak on the on the idea of multiverse which you're not pulling up to but interdimensionality through phenomena like dreams and precognitive stuff through the portal of dreams and these kind of altered states of consciousness yeah i'm i'm not you know i'm not a fan of the multiverse um and i'm not a i'm not super compelled by multi-dimensional arguments well, this um, is why I say interdimensionality. interdimensionality. So I, I wanted to scrap the multiverse altogether, since mm -hmm. since I know good and well how you feel about that. But interdimensionality <laughs> through dreams and through things like 
precognitive experiences within dreams. And so when I say inner, I mean inner, as far as our inner world or whatever's going on that allows us this function through dreams and through the idea and process of precognition. Well, I'm not certain what you mean by interdimensional, but you mean inner or inter? You mean inner, inner, so, inner. Okay, inner, right, yeah, right. Well, the uh, I'll say the 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 great discovery for me uh, in working with all this. I mean, I think when when anyone starts going down the path of studying ESP and all that, you know, I think everyone has this idea. Oh, wow, it's a it's a superpower or something. You know, you're gonna. Um, it, you know, if you think of it as this enhanced um, something that's going to you know, make your life better, you're going to, you know, be some kind of ninja going through life, you know, <laughs> seeing the future or something like that. Uh, well, that's the real reward of this for me has been uh, these experiences that put you in touch with your own biography, your own uh, long body, <laughs> you know? Uh, and uh, it's, it's incredibly, I mean, first of all, it's awe-inspiring to just have a precognitive, to recognize that you've had a precognitive dream. That, that itself is awe-inspiring, especially if you, ha- if you have enough of these experiences that you can start to trust them, because there's this tendency that we talked about earlier to just, just kind of like sweep it under the rug because like you just uh feel like you can't you know that you're you know you must be making a mistake somehow if (laughs) if you're having this experience uh so you kind of have to have enough of these experiences uh to kind of go no this is real and and uh our paradigms that don't accept it are wrong (laughs) you know um but once you do that it's it becomes you know, in, first of all, incredibly awe-inspiring to realize that we are our brains are somehow reaching across time. You know that we are we are we are reaching across time. You know when we sleep and probably you know all in other ways. But it's incredibly it's even more uh, sublime to to have these experiences like I had uh, that w- with that lucid dream I, I told you about. Uh, where you you realize uh, that your dream included uh, a representation of you looking back at the dream later. That's like this fractal, uh, uh, really kind of sublime thing. It's like looking at a mirror at yourself, but across time rather than space. It's just really uh, very profound to have these experiences. And, uh, and the more kind of practice, the more you gain insight into your own dream life, because you record a lot of dreams, the more you start to understand your own dreams and sort of understand how they work. Uh, and, uh, you, you, you can start to have these experiences more and more frequently. Um, and it's a profound, profound, uh, spiritual experience. And, uh, this is what really has come to excite me uh, more than anything else about about the study of precognition. I'm um, I, I don't I'm 
I'm not so much thinking of it in terms of a superpower. I think it's it's it puts us in touch with our own lives and our self. Uh, self is kind of the, our biography, uh, our you know, the, and, and realizing that there's there's a a kind of a wholeness uh, to our unfolding life that we can really get this new kind of experience of um, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's very powerful. So I don't know if that answers your question. It's, okay. So I'm actually, I'm going somewhere. So if we through precognitive experience through the dreams, is it, and in context to the block, is it possible to unlock? And, and I am thinking here a little bit in the Hindu sense and also the Zen, Zen, Zen lens. Uh, is it possible to unlock the full code, for lack of a better word, to get into a space where you've you've set aside or you've stepped higher up or lower? However, you've got a distance from the whole experience, and you can see the whole time space thing that you're playing out this drama in is this a possibility i think what you're asking is something like what uh ted chang pr proposes in his story that arrival is based on the idea of uh of the way the hepto the haptopods in the story see time and sort of seeing that complete uh seeing their life as a whole Mm -hmm. Is that what you're sort of referring to? Yes. And so, yes, absolutely. I don't, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I would be skeptical of that. Um, at least in our ordinary, certainly not in our ordinary conscious frame of mind. I may be in an altered state. I, I, I don't know. And I don't know what that would look like, but certainly, uh, you know, uh, accounts of, of of powerful hallucinogenic experiences, for instance, uh, certainly could well be what you're talking about. Um, uh, I, I I don't know. Have, I guess have you had any of those? If we take it, can I follow this for a minute, Jerry? If we take it, if we take it more into a more mundane aspect of just the basic precognitions you have within the dream, within a dream. And that, that tend to be, in my experience, mundane. Coming into a room and realizing, you know, that I have had this dream, I've accessed this at some mm -hmm. point. So if we build upon that uh, a narrative of which we're, of course, recording when we wake up or recording our precog experiences, is there a way that, that we could then discern the larger picture of our personal lives and and get maybe a glimpse of the bigger picture of our personal lives so it through a mundane precognitive precognitive recordings so i'm looking for like the mapping aspect of it yeah well <clears throat> i think certainly as you as you engage in this you know what i consider what i call precognitive dream work over time you were definitely getting that mapping of 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 your your uh, your own your your own life and at, at your own life as it as it intertwines with other people's lives. Um, uh, <clears throat> the really interesting thing uh, is to uh, is to 
to sort of see how how uh, how your own precognitive experiences connect connect you to others, uh, other uh, important people or not important people in your life, and sort of work as this kind of um, uh, this how precognition works is to kind of weave uh, weave lives um, together. This is something I'm working on uh, right now. I'm sort of collaborating with a, a precog uh, on this, uh, and uh, and she's you know excellent at sort of map yeah, doing what you I think what I think what you're describing, which is mapping out uh, uh, her life via her her dreams and her dream records and so forth. Um, yes. this larger sense of her biography. Yeah, no, absolutely. And so, and just to follow this up and finish it up so that Jerry can get to the question he had is, I forgot what it was. So don't worry about it. Dude, you should always write it down. That's why I have notes. Uh, anyway, is, is okay. So just to wind back around the, out-of-body experiences. Did you say you have had a couple? Yes. Um, I, well, I had, I had a couple of them when I was a kid, when I was a teen. And, uh, uh, you know, just sort of, you know, rising up off the bed and sort of flying around my room kind of things. And I didn't know what to make of them. Um, uh, but I was, but my, because my parents were psychologists and I was kind of, I, I was kind of steeped enough in sort of basic, I think, psychological science just from being around my parents that I, I it, my belief that I had actually left my body or flown up the ceiling kind of, I think was kind of squelched pretty, you know, I was sort of, you know, pretty quickly a kind of skeptical, you know, uh, voice stepped in and said, well, this is some kind of dream, <laughs> you know, it wasn't real so unfortunately that kind of materialist uh uh view kind of kind of squashed uh any interest in in that phenomenon uh until i was much older uh but yeah i had a couple uh a few years ago um well no i have i had one in the in the late 1990s uh i i didn't recognize it I wouldn't. I didn't have the vocabulary at the time to call it an out-of-body experience. That's what, in hindsight, it was. I I wrote it down and and, and have all the details of it. Uh, and in hindsight, I can tell that it was precognitive of of something I did the next day. Uh, and and then a few years ago, I had a, a very striking one. Um, uh, I could describe it actually, uh, or I could describe part of it. I this I had actually been actively trying to trying to induce um, uh, out-of-body experiences uh, with no luck for, you know, for many months. But I was sort of trying these uh, uh, tactile imaging exercises that uh, a guy named, an author named Robert Bruce um, recommends. And uh, anyway, I, I had luck one night. I, I, I found myself uh what felt like i was floating in uh up near the ceiling of my study which is about i don't know about i guess 20 feet down the hall from from where i was laying in bed 
uh, and it was at night and I, I was just like up near the, near the ceiling of my study, looking down through the windows at the street below. Uh, and it was just very, very vivid, just crystal clear, like, oh my God. And I like immediately thought, oh my God, I'm, I'm, I, I succeeded, you know? And, and one of his recommendations is, well, make your flights short <laughs> because uh, only, only then will you be assured of, of then remembering it the next day. Because you want to, if you're a beginner, you just need to, it's important to remember it. Because if you have an out-of-body experience, you don't remember it, it's like, yeah. So, uh, so anyway, so I followed his instructions and turned right around and, and went back to my body woke up. I didn't even make it all my way back to my body. I just sort of turned around and I just kind of woke up in bed. But there was one detail, again, about like this view out the window, and it was strange. Uh, there was this green, like a green diode uh, that looked like it was somewhere hovering in space outside the window, uh, sort of between the window and the street somehow. And it was just, it was kind of perplexing and a, uh, a little ominous, almost like it was an electric eye or something like that. Uh, and uh, anyway, that was the only sort of detail that didn't match the reality. And the next day I, I looked out the window, I tried to see what it might have been, I, I couldn't, couldn't figure it out. Well, anyway, uh, exactly. A year later, uh, minus I think two days, it was like almost exactly a year later. I was in my study in the evening, up on a chair, changing my light bulb in the in the, in the ceiling. And I, it was dark outside, and I looked down at the window, and reflected in the window was the green diode of the, my the adapter for my laptop it was sitting on my desk and if like if i had been down lower in the room i wouldn't have i wouldn't have been able to see this green light reflected in the window like that but because i was up by the ceiling changing a light bulb looking down it was like right there like exactly as it as i'd seen it in that uh out of body experience a year earlier and so I thought, oh my God, you know, it's like, you know, I, I don't know. And I can't say for sure that maybe my computer was in exactly the same place a year earlier. So maybe, you know, like could have been out of body, but it just seemed to me like, oh my God, this is comfort. This, you know, I'm right now experiencing in my body uh, this thing that I saw a year earlier in this, you know, quote unquote, out of body experience. So uh, that kind of that, that was one of the, the important things I think that, that sort of clued me in to the idea that, that out of body experiences might be video quality precognitive experience. That's a great example. Sorry, Jared, that is like such a perfect example. No, I don't know what I was going to say. Really, I was going to comment on that more something like that must have really reinforced your belief that that would be what the, that it's connected. Well, it's sort of <clears throat> I, at that point I really wasn't sure i didn't really have any theory i was i was certainly open-minded to the idea i still okay. am open-minded to the idea of, of of consciousness leaving the body i, I don't want to be closed to that um but uh, I'm, I'm not close like that experiences like that that kind of uh make me excited about the idea that that a lot of things that that you know phenomenologically they feel like our consciousness is somehow leaving our body or, or whatever uh, but they may really be uh, a sort of consciousness displaced in time. 
uh, uh, because there's um, there, and I go into this in the book, but there's reasons why uh, uh, information uh, from that's sort of refluxing from our future that we would not be able to engage in what's called source monitoring. We wouldn't be able to sort of place it in a context uh, of our sort of autobiography the way we can with memory. Okay, uh, and so it's going to feel it's going to feel, you know, like it's alien, you know, it's going to feel uh, like it's, you know, coming from outside us or like we're leaving our bodies or something. It's not going to, uh, we're not going to be able to place it and, and contextualize it. And so, um, you know, I, I think that a lot of experiences that, that people, you know, depending on their belief systems or whatever, they, they, they explain it in all kinds of different ways. Um, these kinds of, you know, alien feeling, experiences um, could well be precognitive experiences um, for that reason, because we can't engage in source monitoring. Madfinger reminded me what my question was. Yay. You, you were talking, <laughs> Eric was talking about altered states of consciousness and uh, psychedelic experiences. And I was asking what, if he had had any, if you'd tried any of that stuff. Um, uh, in your oh, youth, sure. Of course, I mean, yeah. well, you know, one, one, <laughs> one, one, one tries things in one's youth. Um, I've, I'm, you know, I'm more, I'm more compelled by, by the, the altered states that Zen practice has, has been able to, uh, induce and, um, and in a much more kind of stable and sustained, uh, sustained fashion um uh you can you can really have quite amazing experience and in fact uh this is another area i have not even started to write about or but i've only started to think about but i've realized that some of my uh kind of mystical experiences that i've had in the process of meditation also have been turned out to be precognitive of things many years in the future Hmm. Um, at least it's true of at least one experience I had, uh, back in, uh, when I was first like intensively meditating, like around the year, I think it was in 2000, 2001. Um, uh, it, it very uncannily, uh, uh, matched, uh, something on exactly the same day, <laughs> uh, something like, uh, 20 years later. So. Hmm. Uh, I'm I'm starting to think that that this is an this, this is a ripe area of exploration yeah, <laughs> of, of looking at looking at mystical experience as potentially precognitive experience. Sure, um, you could even look at some of the psychedelics as control sure. mechanisms to keep people away from using their own natural ability to get into that state. That a right. state which I would argue you control versus right. one that something else may be controlling. Right. Well. Um, uh, hallucinogens are definitely, I would say, precognigenic. Um, and this is this I'm just this is just from uh, 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 some of the stuff I've read about. Um, I, you know, I've never tried ayahuasca, but uh, certainly the, the stories that uh, that people tell here. I'll give some examples. Um, I. Uh, Michael Harner, for instance, the shamanism uh, uh, anthropologist who studied shamanism and taught shamanism and so forth, you know, he <clears throat> has this story. He he opens his his classic book, The Way of the Shaman, with his story of his 
first kind of ayahuasca experience with the, uh, I think it's the Hivaro um, in uh, South America. Uh, and, you know, this experience was like he was seeing this dragon uh, vomiting forth a river. Uh, and, <clears throat> well, the next, the very next day, uh, he's leaving, he's leaving this, uh, this tribe to go back to civilization. Uh, and he's in a boat with a couple of missionaries. And he tells them about this experience. And they get this, like, look on their face, you know, like, uh, like they're kind of dumbfounded. And they get out their Bibles, and they show him a passage, passage in Revelations, which talks about this dragon vomiting forth a river. It's essentially exactly what he saw in his vision. Now, you know, like I think a lot of people, he he's sort of takes this as this amazing confirmation of the sort of archetypal reality of what he'd seen. But another way of reading it is that his ayahuasca experience was precognitive of what, what, you know, what these missionaries showed him the next day in the Bible. Uh, and uh, when I when I when I found that uh, story, I immediately thought, uh, I wonder what. Yeah, I, I wanted to go back to. Uh, uh, you know, uh, William S. Burroughs and Ellen Ginsberg, you know, wrote a book, The Yage Letters, uh, which was about their, like, journey in search of ayahuasca uh, you know, back in the late 50s. And uh, so I got out my copy of, of their book, and I opened it right to a page where Ellen Ginsberg is talking about his, um, uh, his first experience. Uh, maybe it wasn't, uh, yeah, I think it was his first experience with ayahuasca. And he's uh, describing these, um, you know, having this very intense uh, experience about his mother and about um, sort of uh, sort of taking it back to his childhood. And it's very sad. It's about his mother sort of dying uh, un unloved in this mental hospital. And it was something that really had been a sort of trauma for Ginsburg and sort of colored his, his own relationships to women and everything. Um, well, he, but then he has an afterthought. He describes going into a bookstore to buy a pencil or buy a pen, I think, to write that letter to Ginsburg, to, uh, to Burroughs to describe it. And he notes that on the, that on the radio when he's in that bookstore is this old song that he had loved to play when he was a child. And it's this, 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 this really sad song, uh, I forget the name of the song. It's from a soundtrack of some 1930s movie, but the, the refrain in the movie is, Will You Love Me Never? This woman singing this plaintive thing, Will You Love Me Never? to this man who's going away. And it sort of brought back, it's a song that for him brought back all these feelings about childhood and the sadness and, and stuff. And of course, he doesn't put together that, well, you know, maybe his, 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 his drug experience was precognizing that that moment or that was somehow informing you know his his experience with this powerful hallucinogen i don't know i mean this is these are two examples but uh uh it, it really makes me wonder how you know uh that 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 yes these these um substances are potentially uh very uh, uh capable of inducing these kinds of experiences very cool where do you find yourself? You sound like, by the way, in the I've had a taken a few neuroscience classes, and you you remind me of a lot of 
kind of a neuroscientist. Right. I'm um, sorry, you broke up. Did you repeat what you just said? You're reminding me, uh, there's a lot of neuroscience that I'm picking up from you in um, modern neuroscience theory. Of course, the whole thing is pretty modern. But I wanted to, I want to ask where your ideas are in, in the process of death. Like, so within context to all this that you've laid out, what, what do you think goes on are you what camp are you in what are your theories what are your ideas what do you postulate um i i try not i try not to postulate i don't i don't know and i don't uh you know i i i certainly i'm hesitant to give any kind of opinion on that because i you know, we're all so biased that I don't think any anyone can give an opinion on that that's not uh, colored by their hopes. Um, it's a subjective answer. Yeah, yeah. I mean, can't, yeah. can't we? But, but that's where I like. But the, I, I, I will like, say, but I, where I was, what I was going to say though is that 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 my the hypothesis that I'm putting forward in my book, Time Loop, is not does not answer that question. And it does not, and in fact, it it sort of presupposes um, uh, a brain-based view of of precognition. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm not. No, I'm not trying to answer any larger questions of what consciousness, you know, is in some bigger sense. And I'm not mm-hmm. trying. I'm not s- trying to reduce it to the brain or whatever. But I do. I do think that the contents of consciousness, which is our everything we know in our lives, everything we learn in our lives and our experiences. Um, I do think of that as rooted in the brain. I don't I don't I don't see that the evidence that's sometimes put forward um, for the survival of personality, you know, beyond bodily death and so forth. Mm-hmm. I'm not compelled by that evidence. Um, uh, so my you know generally my thinking is that you know even if even if there's some aspect of consciousness that's not reducible to uh to the brain or whatever uh the contents of consciousness and that and it's those contents that we're talking about with precognition uh mm-hmm. those I, I i i i do think are are dependent on the brain um so yeah that's why and that's what i'm saying when i kind of make an association with neuroscience and some of the some of the things i'm hearing yeah i've taken a few classes a few neuroscience classes because i find it all fascinating and i try to not have conviction and i really try to remain open with everything and so you know i i don't like to hitting my head on the wall you know right well i'm not like i I don't um uh i'm definitely you know i'm i'm that the consciousness thing i think is a is a is kind of uh um i don't know i think i think it's a A catch-all well it's a catch-all it's a it's poorly defined you know no two people mean the same thing by the term 
So it's just bound to get people to argue and they're often arguing past each other. Uh, yes. Because they're, yeah. they're defining it in different ways. Um, uh, I, I just think it's kind of one of those unanswerable um, uh, things. So, uh, but I'm certainly open to, to, you know, various you know, I, I've been at, at various times, you know, depending on what time of the day you catch me, I might be a, a panentheist or, a, you know, a, uh, whatever. I'm, I'm simply, uh, I'm not, I, I don't consider myself a neuro-reductionist. Um, but, yeah. but like you, I've, I find uh, neuroscience research very interesting. Uh, it's certainly, you know, there's so, there's only so much it can tell us. I mean, I think neuroscience is in its, is it really in its infancy? Yes, it right is now. definitely. And uh, as much as we know about the brain, uh, it's uh, there's way, way more that we don't know, and that we will be able to learn in the future with you know better imaging tools and and the ability to study you know individual neurons and what's inside neurons and all. You know, it's like we're our, our current tools are just very crude. I think for understanding. Uh, understanding us as human beings. So as like, long as you, as long as you realize the limits of, of neuroscience, it can be very interesting. Um, I think that a lot of a lot of people who study um, these questions of of uh, you know parapsychology and mysticism and paranormal like that tend to have this view of neuroscience and neuroscientists as these kind of bad guys who are trying to uh, take all the mystery away from the world. I, I, I work with neuroscientists on a daily basis and, and they're definitely not like that. I don't, I don't uh, you know, most aren't interested in these, you know, they're not thinking about these questions. They're just, they're investigating some, you know, some little aspect of, cer of some certain kind of behavior or illness or whatever. And, and uh, you know, most aren't, thinking about consciousness and how it reduces the brain function or, or whatever. That's not, uh, you know, it, that, that's not a big thing for most neuroscientists. But I don't they think. could locate the synapse that fires when you blink right. your right eye. Right, Boom. right, right. You're going right to or, the Pentagon. Or all the fascinating stuff they're into, you know, go, the ghosting aspect of people who've lost limbs, ear, earworms, mm -hmm. and all that. Sure. There's sure. so much juiciness there. Eric talked about earworms being a synchronistic something or other, or a precursor to a precog, or part of a precog dream. Yeah, earworms are, are, are very, very precognitively rich. Phenomenal. Yes. <laughs> um, uh, they, uh, yeah, pay attention to your earworm. Right, yeah. Not only write down your dreams, write down your earworms, um, because uh, they can be very valuable. They have they're, something to tell you. Sorry. I have a question when you're ready. <laughs> Go, Jerry. All right. This is long and complicated, but really good question. <laughs> so um, this, this is going to reference the Radio Mysterioso interview, basically, because, because I just heard it today, and you don't remember it. So um, <laughs> I do remember it, you know, vaguely. But You'll remember I, this I like part. Greg a lot. He's, he's really cool, but I'd like, I, I don't know what we specifically talked about. Greg is awesome. I wish he was my neighbor. Yeah, um, he is. <clears throat> so you guys were talking about dream imagery and how symbolic it is. 
and he claimed he made the statement that it was oblique. Yeah, which that's I, a great word. I love that he. Yes, yes. I I, I took took issue word. with that word really because I think of it more as abstract than oblique. But but that's just me. So you were talking about that and the symbols, and I couldn't help thinking about archetypes and how you didn't actually mention that they are just archetypes, perhaps, of whatever those things are, which then made me think about how archetypes and symbols are also sigils in, in like chaos magic or in magical operation and how that programs your subconscious. So have you ever thought about the connections there between like sigil magic or even ritual magic to these kind of ideas of retrocausation and time loop yeah not not much i i'm um i've had this conversation with a lot of people i have a lot of friends who are you know really interested in chaos magic and mm -hmm. um i'm i'm i think it's a personality thing i'm i'm not someone who's interested in uh 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 working you know we're, we're, that that kind of uh i don't know how to describe it that kind of magical you know working with one's intention or mm -hmm. or uh casting you know using sigils or like that uh, doesn't speak to me um i'm i'm sort of a i'm more of a taoist kind of person who likes to watch what's going to happen and, and see things unfold i kind of I, I i think i resonate so well with the block universe view because i think my personality is uh, being a spectator mm -hmm. anyway. And so I'm a little superstitious actually about, uh, about, uh, doing thing, something that's going to set a certain intention because I always assume it's going to backfire or work in some <laughs> ironic way that I didn't want. And so my preference is to just sort of let things unfold. Um, uh, and, uh, and I think that gets to the question of obliquity because, um, the that's uh, another you know word for oblique well it, it also goes goes back to my interest in freud because this was this is sort of the basic premise of psychoanalysis or psychoanalytic theory according to freud which is that uh the unconscious it works in this oblique indirect way uh and that there's this ironic it has an ironic quality to it uh, that's always subverting our conscious intention uh, in some way. And now, the reasons he gave for that, I don't agree with. I mean, he thought that, that we were constantly defending ourselves against repressed thoughts and repressed wishes. Uh, I disagree with that. I think that that it's much more interesting that what he described is this kind of unconscious realm of, of, of defenses and, and oblique uh, symbols uh, was really precognition and that there's a, there, there's a reason we can't understand it. Uh, it's because it's a relation to our future and we're, it's not the future yet. And so we're never going to understand things correctly uh, from the viewpoint of some future time looking back. So there's this relation to our future self that's, that's always going to be oblique or, or sort of awry. Uh, it's not going to be uh, direct. And, and, and whenever, and the more confidently we, we state the meaning of some, uh, you know, dream or symbol or whatever uh, in the present, 
the more we can be assured that we're going to uh, look like fools <laughs> the next day, you know, uh, when we look back on it in hindsight. Uh, and so that's, that's kind of, uh, uh, that's kind of accounts for, I think my superstition about, about intention setting and, and use of, of sigils and things like that, that kind of that sort of chaos magic uh, approach to life. Uh, and I, I had this, I've, I've had this conversation with a number of people because it's, you know, I think it is a personality kind of trait. Sure, you know, sure. I think, I think some people, you know, want to feel like they're, they're taking control of their future. And I'm always superstitious about that somehow, like that's going to actually backfire in some in some unforeseen way. <laughs> and as long as you believe that, it probably always will. Right, exactly. So I'm you know, locked. So <laughs> I'm my, locked in. I guess in, I uh, didn't ask my question the right way. Um, so these symbols that you would see in your dreams, this is where I'm going with it. You talk about these oblique imagery, this oblique sim, uh, symbology. I'm suggesting that they're programming you in a way that sigils program the universe for you. That they're not, you know, they're not, I'm trying to make a correlation, not necessarily right. equal. Yeah. <clears throat> um, it, could, it could be just a communication yeah. system between mm -hmm. whatever and you. You sound like a crypto Jungian. I don't know what I, I'm not labeled. I can't label myself. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> it could be uh, <laughs> if I knew what it meant. Um, I, uh, that's, you know, um, kind of the view that's not too far from the view that's held by, um, Jacques Vallée, actually, a, a great yeah. ufologist and, and who has sort of a, a view of, 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 of the universe as, as sort of built of, of information, uh, and that we're constantly sort of programming it through our thoughts. And um, I, I think that would also probably go along with a lot of new thought, you know, stuff. But, um, you, know, it's a, you know, it's a very interesting idea. I, I don't subscribe to it. Um, I'm definitely in that personally. camp. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's, it's cool. Yeah. Uh, I, I, uh, I think that, uh, that dream, you know, symbology and so forth, symbolism, reflects the oblique to use that word again the oblique way the information uh has to reach us in the past um from a source in the future um uh you know just to take one example we couldn't have you know you couldn't have a clear being a a a, a human being who believes in free will like we all sort of do you know uh, as we go through life we act as though we have free will you know you couldn't have a very clear vivid precognitive dream of an outcome that you could take an action to prevent like a, a bad outcome you know that you could easily take an action to prevent you're not going to have that dream um instead you're going to have because if you took an action to prevent it then that future wouldn't occur and so you wouldn't have had the dream so that's a paradox so the only way unless the future is malleable, well, well, right. Uh, but then you, that that opens up a lot of problems for thinking about the possibility of precognition. Um, I, I argue that that precognition is only possible because of the glass. The future is fixed. Yeah, and so 
uh, in that case, that's then precognitive dreams are going to have this 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 obliqueness to them. They're going to you know you're not going to dream the exact outcome. Then you're going to dream uh, something displaced in some way, and that's what Freud's uh, uh, Freud's work really mapped out brilliantly. Uh, was the sort of ways information is displaced. Now again, he had, he thought it was because we were defending ourselves against some thought that we didn't want to have. Um, this, the idea of repression, uh, but I argue that no, it has to do with the fact that the unconscious is really consciousness displaced in time, and 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 when you think about how information uh, has to reflex backward in time and be meaningful, but without foreclosing uh, out foreseen outcome, then it starts to make a different kind of sense of of Freudian dream symbolism. So that's my uh, alternative uh, take on that. It's oh, a great take. I, I love it. Where do you stand on the whole ET phenomena? Uh, e you mean ET? Extraterrestrial, like aliens, that kind of stuff. Abductions, what? Uh, well, if you mean ufology or UFOs or... Uh, well, the, but the, not the, just the objects flying around, the things mm -hmm. flying them around. Well, I, you know, there's, I, I don't, I don't know what to make of that. You know, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I, it was, no, it was ufology that got me actually into this because, uh, originally I, I saw a couple of UFOs in, in 2009, uh, and it's what sort of led me down the path to reading about you know, realizing that there were smart people who were actually writing about this stuff, including Jacques Vallée, who yes. links who links UFOs to psychic phenomena. And I had never had any problem with the idea of UFOs; that didn't bother me. But I was a I did have sort of a knee jerk skepticism about ESP and psychic phenomena. So that it kind of it sort of troubled me that here's a smart person who's who's uh, you know writing very seriously about about ESP. And so that got me, you know, you know, reading that literature. And ultimately, I think like a lot of people, I kind of gave up on ufology because it's such a murky, you know, yeah. there's so much deception and manipulation and, and it's a government run program. Well, there's everything. I mean, there's that, and there, you know, there's, there's, you know, there's, you, you don't know what's, you don't know what the there there is at the heart of it, you know? Exactly. Um, and uh, so I sort of, that's why I kind of went down the path of studying ESP. I've got I've lately gotten back into the UFO stuff a bit, um, but it's such a it's there's so many so many aspects uh, to the phenomenon or the phenomena. I would say well, you know, it opens up the it opens up that pathway of otherness. For me, it does at least. Sure, but how much of it is other, and how much of it is is very human? Uh, deception, you know. Well, in in you union know, psychology, all otherness is you. So, well, I, you know, say I wouldn't want to. I certainly wouldn't want to reduce UFO phenomenon to to reflections of our own unconscious. I mean, I, I, I think that there's. A, I do think there's a there there. Uh, mm -hmm. But what is it? ETs? Is it? Is it? Uh, is it? you know, interdimensional beings, you know, that that's what Jacques Vallée would say. Is it, is it time travelers? I mean, I think that's a time travel is something that, that has not been looked at. Um, no, uh, it, it has, it really has. It has. 
it's it's there and and it seems to me one of the more logical just or at least reasonable uh explanations for a lot of the phenomena we observe yeah non-physical um and you know any number of explanations you know so so you know but 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 what and I don't know if anyone has any, anyone <laughs> has any clue. What she was so. really asking is, do you believe they're coming in spaceships from outer space? <laughs> um, no, but I think the uh, the the idea that we're that probably the whole universe is swarmed with with drones <laughs> is probably a pretty realistic idea, and it may not even account for. For, for many UFO encounters. I mean, many UFO thing, encounters could be coming completely different, but the idea that we live in a kind of surveillance universe, yes. <laughs> you know, uh, yes. is, is, you know, I think, uh, I, don't, I don't think there's any reason to, to doubt that. So, you know, that could be part of it too. You know, that I just think, explain... I think there's multiple phenomena going on. Yeah, totally. That, that yeah. would explain the missing dark matter. <laughs> Good. Yes. All, yeah. the, all those drones. <laughs> well very both had the ufo experience where it it changed your both of your both of you have like a paradigm shifting experience around it so that's why i thought it was interesting because jerry wasn't on any of this no at all until he had his experience what did you see um an orange orb (laughs) me too about the size of a quarter holy shite (laughs) Well, this is, it's not the first coincidence that we've had, but yeah, wow. no, it was over my, in, not in my backyard, but it was over my neighbor's house across my yard. Huh. And I got pictures of it and oh wow, made a MUFON I, report and all that. Oh yeah, I made a MUFON of mine too. I didn't, I, mine was farther away and I, I, I had a, a flip cam and I tried to film it and it didn't come out in the flip cam, but um, I, I did make a MUFON report and yeah, but it was, I mean, it wasn't. It was it was it was very strange. It wasn't, you know, by itself. It wasn't life altering for me, but it led me to read about UFOs, <laughs> and 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 uh, and that was, I guess, more more life altering. I suppose. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So okay, I got a question here from Oswald. He wants to know who your favorite sci-fi writers are, were past or present. Hmm. Um. Well, I I'm a Big fan of Phil Dick. I'm a big fan of Stanislav Lem, the Polish um, writer uh, who wrote Solaris and a number of other really, really great novels. Uh, I'm a big fan of the Strugatsky brothers, um, the Russian brothers who wrote uh, Roadside Picnic. Uh, it was the novel that was sort of adapted by Andrei Tarkovsky and made into the movie um, Stalker. Um, uh, their stuff is really cool. I'd say those are probably, I'm sure there's someone like I'm forgetting, but that's probably, those would be my, my top three. He said, fuck yeah, Stanislav. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Lem, Lem is, is, is really, really, really amazing. And I wish more people, uh, knew his work. Do you give any time, I know everyone's busy, but do you give any time to some of the modern sci-fi that is 
that is sorry my cats <laughs> the, no piano the, yet <laughs> not on the piano yet some of the modern sci-fi shows that are out there that i mean i think there's just some phenomenal shows out there I don't. I unfortunately just don't watch TV. I, I just don't have time. It's just, I know, I know there's a lot of, I, I know we're in like a golden age of, 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 of television and I just don't unfortunately have the time to watch anything. Yeah. That's why I figured you, you just seem really, really busy, especially with the baby in it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a baby at 50. That's, that takes balls. <laughs> Luckily, my wife is a little younger than me. <laughs> we are in a golden age, though, Eric. There's some. I mean, I I lament the fact that some of these really great stories were not around in the '70s. Mm -hmm. you know, that I could have chewed on. Although some of it's just rehashed good good stuff from these great old writers. Mm -hmm. A lot, a lot of it's actually derivative of. Of what? Uh, of the the stories that have been told already. And so with modern, with a little bit, uh, you know, the text there yeah. to to show some yeah. of the, the, the strangeness, the high strangeness yeah. in a good way. I, I, I do watch Black Mirror. I, sorry, yes. I, I Black just, Mirror yes, is great. Yes, Fantastic. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah. Yeah, I'm I, thinking I, on that level, though, of really great stuff. Yeah, right, right. Oh, that's, a, that's a great show, and that sort of cool. takes, brings that's, Phil Nick up to I date. Yeah. you got to wonder, too, how much uh, creativity has gotten through this precognition mechanism. Well, this is what I'm writing about right now. This is my, my second book uh, probably is going to be about. Um, what a great and, segue. Uh, uh, it's, uh, yes, I think that this is the, the, I think this is the mechanism, the mechanism of, of, of creativity. Um, uh, so yeah, I could, I could talk at length about this, but the more, the more you study, I mean, I, <clears throat> my book, I packed in a lot of examples of writers, you know, who, you know, had precognitive experiences and so forth but i think that uh when you when you drill down and look at 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 really genius writing i, I think it's the, the basic mechanism behind all creativity but uh, we have uh because uh certain works of 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 high <laughs> genius or whatever uh tend to have a, a be encrusted with lots of his, history and backstory and and you know the, the writers you know journals and letters all that we we can sort of piece together um how precognition feeds into uh the story of of artistic creation in 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 some of these cases and there are a lot of them and uh anyway i'm so this is what i'm 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 very excited to write about right uh, i'm looking forward to reading that for sure i have had some more thoughts that's all I got, Nish. Yeah, I'm. I'm good. All right. Are we. I got my death questions. Usually, my last. I know. Thing. <laughs> I know. All right. So, thank you, Eric, so much. Do you want to plug anything other than the book you're working on? Um. Well, no, that's uh, still a long way off from being published. But uh, I'll plug my my current book, which is Time Loops, um, and uh, my blog, which is called The Night Shirt. Dot com. It's all one word, the nightshirt.com. 
Uh, so I write about this. I, I don't write very frequently, but I write at length when I write. <laughs> so, <laughs> so there's a lot of lot of stuff there um, uh, that's not in the book. Um, but th this has been great. This has been a very fun conversation. Well, thank you for joining us. And anyone listening, the links to everything that Eric just mentioned, plus links to his website and whatnot and Twitter account are all in the show notes for everyone. And so. I highly recommend his book, Time Loops. Amazing. It's just really, uh, it's amazing. I think it's going to only, age, I think it's going to age well. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. I hope so. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Uh, thank you, Eric, again. Thanks, Nish. Thanks, everyone in the chat. And be sure to tune in next week. We'll have uh, another author, Peter Moon, The Montauk Project. So that should be interesting. So everyone have a good night. We'll talk to you later. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot.